Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Hello and welcome. Today on the show, our guest is Kent Ritter. He's got a really great story about leaving the corporate world and starting his own multifamily investment firm. So spent years as a management consultant, started his own firm, and then has been buying multifamily properties around the Midwest. And we walk through his whole journey on a lot of the lessons he learned from helping companies that were you know, distressed in his management consultant role. Uh, and to kind of taking that decade plus experience and building his multifamily business and using some of those lessons. So we really dive into some of the details on how he's built his company, um, you know, around culture and around processes and um, kind of his rationale for a lot of the things that he's done. So they're off to the races. They, they built a company and the company's growing. And I think you're going to learn a lot from his journey, whether you're an aspiring operator, an operator, passive investor, you name it. There's there's lots of good uh, info in there from my conversation with Kent. Before we dive in, if you're listening, thank you. Appreciate that. And um, I would say if you're not seeing DJE deals, the investment deals from our company, and you want to, you can go to djetexas.com and sign up for our investor list. We could send you case studies show you past projects, show you projects that come out in the future, get to know our team, all that fun stuff at djetexas.com. Secondly, if you are an aspiring apartment operator, you want to go do stuff, you want to go buy and run these deals and step up and and run your own uh, investment company. We teach people how to do that. Our students are buying, uh, you know, 200, 300 unit projects. Um, and we teach them how to do that. Apartmenteducators.com is the platform that we have set up for that. There's a free eight-part course that I teach there, a video series. We also have monthly meetup events and different things going on that you can get into the loop on that stuff at apartmenteducators.com. So, all right, without further ado, let's jump in and have the conversation here with Kent. Here we go. Kent, welcome. How are you? Devin, I'm doing well, sir. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. It's it's great to connect and I appreciate you jumping on. Look forward to diving in and learning more about your story and you know, the whole thing. Let's let's cram it all into a few minutes here, get the whole life story. But sure. By way of introduction here, you know, let's hear a little bit about your, your background, who you are, where you're from. And then I always like to know what got people on the real estate track and specifically if there was like a you know, an inspiration or a desperation moment for you that, that drove that. Yeah, absolutely. So let's kind of start from the beginning. I uh, graduated from college and, and got a, got into a career as a management consultant. And I did that for about 12 years. Yeah. Uh, what you do as a management consultant is you, you essentially fly around the country helping businesses solve problems they can't solve themselves. So sure. got to see a lot of different businesses a lot of things that work, a lot of things that don't work started to, I think really through that, understand business, understand what levers you can pull, understand, you know, a lot of what not to do because we were usually there when, when things weren't going so well. And, you know, I think that was a a great baseline experience. And then in about 2010, I uh, left the company I was working for with a few partners. We started our own business and we started our own management consulting firm and 
we ran that from 2010 to 2015. And at the end of 2015, we sold that business. And that was really one of two catalysts to start my real estate career uh, was selling that business and kind of saying, you know, what the net, what's the next venture going to be and uh, having some capital and, and wanting to diversify and not be all in the stock market. And so I started really digging into real estate, uh, started, you know, doing kind of, I still had, so when, you know, I sold the business, but I was still working there now. Now I was an employee for the, the company we sold to. Sure. And, uh, and so during that time, out, kind of a period to stay on there and transition. Yeah. Yeah. You got an earn out period, you know, yep. a four year earn out period. So, so I was there till 2019. And uh, so anyway, so during that time, I really started just educating myself as much as I could started podcasts, books that that led to conferences and started doing some things on my own. Started out really a family friend helped me get into uh, doing what he was doing, which was uh, buying sound houses on contract and holding the notes and creating a note portfolio. And so that was really the first thing I did. And uh, I always tell people, I was like, you know, that was, that was fine and all. But um, really, at the end of the day, I felt that it was just as hard to collect those, uh, those interest and principal checks as it was to, to collect rent. And, uh, you know, when I got about a year into it, a guy sold one of the houses that I had the, the note on. Right on. And I looked at that HUD statement. I'm like, man, this guy just doubled his money. And like, I'm getting my, my money paid back. And you know, that, that again, that's okay. But like, wow, this guy doubled his money in one year. It's like, I need to start buying assets. I need to get yeah. out of the debt game. Yeah. So I, I got with some buddies from college and we started buying singles and duplexes and we started doing fix and flips. We started renting them and we built up a portfolio of about 11 uh, single family homes and duplexes. And uh, you know, but that, that just wasn't scalable. Sure. Uh, you know, it was, it was too much of a job and, and not enough, not enough passive income. Uh, and I still, I still had my full-time job. And so I started investing passively with other people, uh, with other sponsors, because I really, through that experience, saw multifamily as the way to really scale up and in a way where I could, uh, really achieve the kind of, uh, cash flow and income that I wanted to, that I wanted to replace, you know, what I had coming in. And so, Anyway, long story short, through 16 to 19, I, I really started investing with a ton of sponsors all over the country, just wanting to learn different ways of doing things, you know, take what I didn't like, uh, what I see what I did like, uh, always with this idea that eventually I wanted to start uh, sponsoring my own deals and, and I wanted to be a syndicator. I really just fell in love with real estate and felt like that was a, a great way to build wealth. I had through those in those kind of three and a half years, I, I had made a ton of money, to be honest. And I felt like if I could get other people into it, you know, they could do that too. And, and I really kind of developed this mission of like, wow, I really want to get people uh, into these investments because it really can be life-changing. So uh, long story short, in 2019, I bought my first, went out with a couple of partners. We bought two properties, 250 units. We syndicated them. And then uh, in 2020, I actually went, uh, spent a little stint with a mentor of mine uh, at his PE firm where they focused on multifamily, they had about 20,000 units. And sure. so that was a, just a great, I, I view that view that as kind of my real estate MBA, you know, that was kind of seeing next, how next level operators work, uh, was there for about 15 months. And then at the end of it, I decided, you know, I, I really am an entrepreneur at heart. I wanted to be out on my own. I wanted to build a business that I could build. I felt like I had the knowledge and the network to do that. And so in, uh, May of 2021, I left and, and started Hudson Investing in, in the form that it is now. And uh, since then, we've acquired three properties, uh, 180 units, 
2021 and, and we're working on kind of my deal nine and 10 right now. I love it. Thank you for the overview. There's a lot, a lot crammed into a couple a lot of minutes. there. I know I was trying to talk fast. <laughs> no, it's great. There's, there's so much in there to kind of dive into. Um, but I love that your background has kind of ideally set you up for the, for the entrepreneurial uh, roles and responsibilities as a, as a multifamily owner, but you've done, you kind of done it all. You, you got to see how companies mess things up for a decade plus yeah. help them fix that hang out your own shingle, do that for a while, and then transition into the, into the ownership side on multifamily. Um, <clears throat> and getting to sit in with a large PE firm and see an operation, I think that's, um, I don't know that I've, I've had anybody on the podcast ever that's been able to have that opportunity. Like a lot of us have a mentor that's got more deals than us and been doing it longer, but mm-hmm. a lot of times not to that scale. Were there some things sitting with that PE mentor that um, you hadn't been previously exposed to that, you know, that maybe you could share with this audience? Yeah, I mean, definitely. They were there. I mean, what it opened my eyes to was because I had been in probably the world that you're into of kind of, you know, the loan syndicators or partnership groups. And, and you know, you may run into people with, you know, a few thousand units, or maybe even 10,000 units, right? Uh, but just being that, just understanding, I guess, first of all, that there is like a whole nother level. Right. Um, and, and it really just, it's really just impossible to compete, uh, with, with, with a group at, at that level. Uh, one of the major reasons being their cost of capital is just typically cheaper. Sure. So, it, you know, and, and I think just thinking about things from a cost of capital standpoint was something I learned from them. So thinking about how much is your equity actually cost? How much is your debt equity your debt actually cost and what's that blended rate look like. Right. Mm-hmm. So you basically for equity, you'll, you'll look at really your preferred return uh, and then your, your debt, you know, your interest rate, that's pretty straightforward, but understand what's your blended cost of capital. And because of the mix of those, right. And, you know, if you're raising money from a large institution that has billions of dollars to deploy, oftentimes they'll be comfortable with a four or 5% return uh, versus the individual investor who, who is expecting maybe a seven or 8% preferred return, uh, you know, and then the upside on top of that. And so just from a cost of capital standpoint, it allows them to be more competitive because if your capital is cheaper, you can pay more for properties. That's right. uh, I think, I think the other thing that really was eye opening to me was the way that they leveraged, um, they leveraged lines of credit uh, to, to handle a lot of the upfront expenses and, and even to the point where uh, they could come in and they'd created relationships with groups to be able to come in and pay all cash for, for million, million dollar deals. Sure. And again, just create competitive advantages, you know, be able to come in and say, I'll pay all cash 30 day close on a, on a 15, $20 million property, um, you know, and put a million down hard. Right. And just things that, that just kind of price everybody else out of the game. Right. And so I think those competitive advantages were really eye opening and and just the, the ways to go about and do those things. And and then and then just even how you raise money from institutional investors, uh, it's just a, and how you set up the, those joint ventures and it's just a totally different way of approaching things. Yeah, well, thanks for the insight on that. That is a different game. And it's um, we kind of play in this space you know, kind of 20 million, $30 million purchase price. And um, fortunately don't go up against groups like that all the time. But if we do, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not doing a million hard, even if I could, <laughs> right. even if the liquidity's there, I'm, I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, um, I know. mean, cr- crazy enough, the plate like that, and it's like, well, next. I mean, I mean, and that's I think that's the competitive advantage to to be able to avoid those bidding wars that we have to go through, right? You just come sure. in, put the million hard down, and say, "All right, who else can do it?" And everybody else walks away. I mean, I, yeah. I just experienced that on actually just a side note on a, it was about a 14, $15 million property. And sure guy came in and just threw a million hard down day one. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that. So we'll move on to the yeah. next one. <laughs> Save everybody a whole lot of time. Right. Yeah. I mean, just move, move right on. Yeah. So that's interesting. And that, that's fascinating to get to see that kind of from the inside and see that organization. So after having gone through your, your corporate experience and then your management consultant experience, you know, with your own firm, did that set the tone for the kind of company you wanted to build or was it just like, Hey, it's time in life to just, you know, start a multifamily investment firm. Let's just go start closing some deals. How did you approach that when it was time to build, to build Hudson? Well, I mean, it, all of my previous experiences absolutely influenced, you know, how I wanted to build the business I wanted to build. And, and I thought, I guess I felt like, and I feel like I have some pretty good ideas on how to do that from, from just past experience. And so, yeah, it really did influence that. And, you know, like when I was, especially in the consulting work, uh, I recognized some common themes uh, mm-hmm. that just consistently seem to, uh, to hurt businesses. You know, there, there were some consistent themes and I kind of break it down. I've talked about it enough at this point that I've kind of broken it down in, into a model. And so it, it's really like four things. It's like culture, context, fit, and feedback. Okay. And, so it's like, you know, culture is, I think people understand what culture is, right? I mean, it's, you know, the kind of the, just the way that people interact with each other within your company, right? What, what are your mission, vision, values, and, and how do people treat each other? So I think if you have a, if you have a poor culture, uh, or if you have people in your, in your company that are, that are not fostering a good culture and are kind of, can be kind of cancerous, I mean, that can just, that can just kill uh, everything. It can stop you dead in your right. tracks. Right. The con- the context is more about um, what what I mean by context is really making sure that everybody understands the importance of their job and how it fits into the bigger picture and how their it. their role affects everybody else around them. Because right. like I I would see so many times where you would have people and they're just doing something, and maybe it was a deadline and and they're like yeah yeah you know they said I need to hit this deadline but like there's really no impact to me if I don't hit the deadline right to them because they don't understand that if they don't get that deadline, it messes up like the three people downstream from them, sure. you know? And, and what I found is most people want to do the right thing. And if you explain the impact it's having on other people, then, then, then they'll do the right thing. And it was, it was just that gap, that communication gap just was there. And, and leadership just didn't spend the time to give them context about how their role fits into the bigger picture, you know, and how, what they do impacts uh, the entire company. I think people, strive to be able to make an impact. You know, people want to make an impact. You got to give that context. Um, fit is, is just, you know, does the person fit with your company? And, and I really like personality tests. Uh, there's a disc profile. It's a, that Tony Robbins does, I think is, sure. is just very accurate and you can go to his website. You can do it for free actually. Um, and so every, anybody I'm going to hire, I have them do that because I want to, I want to make sure one, their personality fits with the company, but two, their personality fits with the role that they're uh, applying for. And I think you can also find things if you, if you look into that, that you should look out for with people, such as, for example, um, one of the I and disc is like somebody that's really oriented toward people uh, and, and can in that way can be a people pleaser. And so with somebody with a really high eye orient- high orientation, you have to look out for 
are they telling me what, what I need to know, or they just tell me what I want to know, you know, are they sugarcoating the, the bad stuff? And so they're just examples like that. I think it's really important to, to understand personality. I think, I think you can avoid a lot of bad hires by, by just doing a personality test and really understanding what it means. And then the last one is the feedback and it's just creating accountability, but, but then also giving people both, both positive and constructive feedback, you know, and, and telling people they're doing a good job because people want to hear that. And that really goes a long way. And I don't, I don't think most of us probably spend enough time doing that, just recognizing people on your team and realize what an impact that has. And then constructive feedback, right? Like you've, uh, if you're not giving people feedback, again, a lot of people want to do things the right way. They just don't know they're doing things the right way. And if you're not right. telling them, then how can they get better? Right. And so then as a, as a leader, you're just sitting there frustrated. Oh, you know, Betty Sue never does this, blah, blah. But have you ever told her the way that you want it done? Have you ever sat down with her and showed her? Right. And, and those are just like really simple things that just go such a long way. And so, um, so yeah, those are some of the things that I really wanted to instill in my company and, and things that I really try to focus on, uh, spending extra time to, you know, make sure we're hiring good fit, making sure we're giving context, making sure we're really developing a culture that people want to be in and, and given consistent and, and, and critical feedback, uh, and doing, doing it from a place of, of love and empathy, right. And approaching it in that way, but, but you got to tell people, uh, so that they can do better. Yeah, I love it. I think that's a great model to look through and build a company around and some of those filters. I like especially the context component. What we've seen in our companies is I think um, it's easy for somebody that's well-meaning, intelligent, and hardworking to be kind of toiling away at something that's not really moving towards the the, mm-hmm. the mission of the company, which is, mm-hmm. you know, just inefficient and frustrating for everybody. And so we spend a lot of time setting some very clear, simple, high level targets, and then kind of reverse engineering that, but spend a lot of time having everybody understand where they fit within that. And I I think that's hugely important because really, you know, nobody wants to let their fellow coworker down if they can help it, you know? Um, But sometimes they might not understand that context and they, they're cranking away on something thinking that that they're, they're doing a good job. And it's like, well, you know, if they're not aligned with the, having everybody row in the same direction, um, that gets a little, that gets a little silly sometimes. So I love that context piece. The personality stuff is, is been huge for us too. Our COO is big on the Myers Briggs and Mm -hmm. we only hire four types out of the 16. And he is like incredibly disciplined about that, which is very hard because you're turning down candidates that you spend a lot of time and energy to get in front of and then turning them away when they might've seemed like a great fit, but he's so disciplined on the personality um, fit for all the things you just mentioned. Yeah. That that's been a a miracle to behold as we've grown the the company um, to, to see how well everybody works together by being really disciplined on the front end with the, with the personality fit. Yeah. I think that's, that's great. I think that that's incredible discipline, but I'm sure it is going to pay off. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's awesome to have the, those pieces teed up going in to start a new company. It's a luxury, right? I mean, you know, you, you probably saw more than most kind of coming into in your management consulting career, big established businesses where you're not just going to turn on a dime. So to start fresh it, mm-hmm. with that experience, that's just, that's just a, a blessing. Um, it's how been fun. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely fun too. And if you're, <laughs> if you're an entrepreneur, like there, nothing else is going to cut it. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, 
so how do you guys, let's talk about kind of the deal specifics, you know, markets, um, asset size, age, you know, what are you, what are you targeting? And then yeah. I, I want to dive in a little bit on the capital stack too, and how you structure that. Sure. Uh, so I really focus on finding, well, first of all, markets Midwest, and, and really we focus on finding mismanaged, undercapitalized, undervalued projects throughout yep. the Midwest. And so uh, I'm based in Indianapolis. And so, and we have properties in Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky. And so, um, you know, there's, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity, especially in kind of the 200 and below unit space. And it's, again, kind of talking about that space below where those big players are playing, below where those PE firms are playing, right? It's just a much different game. And so I really focus in that area. And so we have a lot of properties that are, you know, maybe in the 40 to 50 unit range, 70 unit range, uh, 110 units. Uh, We have a property that's 29 units that that we just bought. And we have a 30 unit property. So we've got properties kind of all all in these ranges. And... um, you know, they've, uh, the toughest nut to crack was just management and figuring out how to effectively yes. manage these smaller yes. properties. But, but we've got a good system going now. And, uh, you know, honestly, I feel that the, the amount of meat that's left on the bone from, from unsophisticated owners that we're buying from just outweighs the, the additional cost and, and kind of friction of, of having, of not having management there on site all the time, uh, you sure. know? And so as we've been able to solve that problem, we've been able to create a ton of value. And so those are really the type of properties that, that we're focusing on right now. Um, we'll do, you know, a lot of portfolio type deals. We're taking a couple of smaller properties, put them together, make it a little more sizable, but, um, sure. yeah. And then, you know, my goal this year is to acquire a thousand units. So we're definitely not going to do that you know, 30, 40 at a time right. this year. Uh, so we're, we're going to have to take down a couple bigger ones this year. And so that's the goal is to, uh, you know, we've got a great base, but continue to, to scale up in size. And uh, yeah, so that's really uh, what we're focusing on and then kind of where we're going. Yeah, I love it. Um, there is a lot of opportunity in those smaller properties. You know, we talk to people about this all the time that kind of want to get into the business Mm-hmm. And the management is the challenge, but at the same time, you, you know, you're, you're going to find an owner on those small properties that might be like a multi-decade owner, which, you know, you're not finding a 250 unit property that somebody's owned for 20 years. Most of the time, this right. straight hands a little more frequently, different buyer, but there's opportunity on the, on the smaller, I say smaller, you know, 40 units is still a, yeah. a substantial deal, but um that kind of direct to owner deal, mismanage the classic kind of mom and pop. So if you can get around the management piece, there's, there's definitely, there's definitely meat on the bone there. So. um, Yeah. I mean, like our, you know, the past two deals I bought were both very long-term owners, both self-managed one lived behind the property he owned. The other lived actually at the property he owned. And uh, you know, and they were both uh, selling and, and retiring. And yep. so it was, uh, one was direct to seller. One was kind of off market through a broker. I know, but just in those ways, like you can, when you can come in and you see, man, these properties, they just haven't raised rent in five, six years. Mm-hmm. In one of the cases, I mean, there's just a, a ton of opportunity that, uh, you know, it can be more difficult. It's, it's definitely more transactions and more volume, but, uh, you know, definitely feel the upsides there. And, and we've been able to carve a nice niche, niche out of it kind of between the, the more experienced folks and, and then more of the mom and pop folks. 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. How are you guys handling the management? Is it is it one third party company over the whole portfolio? Is it asset by asset, or how do you approach that? So it's really different by state, but like for for Indiana, for example, we have one management company that we work with, and, and we've nice. worked uh, very closely with them to uh, just develop a model that works from all the way from really how we're handling OPEX and, and how much of a load are we putting on each property mm-hmm. um, to, you know, ha- to how are we approaching uh, staffing, right. And, and kind of more of a variable staffing than that. We don't have any fixed staff on, on any, on any individual to, property. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, yeah. Uh, and so we've been able to come up with some really unique solutions, leveraging a lot of technology related to, you know, on smaller properties, you usually don't have much vacancy. And so it's very common for us to be hundred percent occupied. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the problem with being hundred percent occupied is there's nothing to show people if they want to tour. Yeah. So, right. you know, investing even on small properties, investing in really good virtual tours, um, investing in self-guided tours, uh, again, because you don't have those management on site all the time when you, when you do have a, a unit to show. So really leveraging technology to, to be able to get out there and, and still show people the great work our, that we're doing and how good our units look uh, without a manager there to just show them around all the time. Right. Do you ever kind of chuckle? You, you kind of came from a, the management consulting world and, and now you're dealing with like, you know, middle market, like multifamily. I came from a tech background and now sometimes I'm like, you know, worried about like uh, what color we're going to paint this 800 square foot apartment. It's like such a like simple business in some ways, right? Yeah. I mean, but, but I think that's the beauty of real estate just in general is like, sure. if you do it right, it can work for anybody, you know, yep. it, it's, it's definitely not rocket science, but it's also not, it's not easy. It takes a no, lot of work. It does, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I like that about it, you know, and I, I like how tangible it is. I like that yes. you can see the property and the condition it's in, and then you can see the improvements that you make and you can be proud of that and you can help improve the neighborhood around it and those tenants lives. And I just, I just enjoy all of that aspect of it. Um, I, re- I think a reason, part of the reason I like those smaller properties is because I really just get that adrenaline rush from finding that like diamond in the rough, you know, and being mm-hmm. like, ah, oh, everybody overlooked this one, but I know what this one can be. Yep. And then seeing that, and then seeing that realized. And so, yeah, it's, it, it is a lot of fun and, and, you know, it still definitely gives me that kind of uh, like with me, the reason that one of the reasons I got into management consulting was I, I just, I did an internship as an accountant when right. I was uh, a junior in college and I sat in a desk and just did journal entries all summer and just hated my life. <laughs> and right. I, I went, I went back to school. I was a double finance and accounting major. I dropped my accounting major with like nine credit hours left. I was like, I'm never doing this again. Like I, I know enough to be dangerous, but I never want to sure. do it as a profession. And, uh, and I got into consulting because I, I never wanted to sit behind a desk all the time and do the same right. thing every day, every day. I wanted new challenges. And so real estate gives me that. And it's like, you know, you're solving problems every day. And, and that's, I think, kind of the sick, twisted, fun part. Yeah, I, I, that definitely resonates with me. And, you know, my, my last uh, corporate job, I just realized, like, I, I'm an entrepreneur. I have, you know, I've got to have that kind of variability. And real estate definitely checks the boxes on, mm-hmm. <laughs> on that. There's always yeah. new stuff to work on. How are you guys putting together the, the capital stack on these projects? Yeah. So we're syndicating the deals. Uh, so we're, we're, you know, we're bringing in private investors, um, probably similar to, to how most do, you know, it's high net worth individuals. And uh, then from, from a debt standpoint, uh, you know, currently 
When I started a couple of years ago, I, I was leveraging a lot of uh, the Freddie small balance product for the, for the size Great of products we were doing. And, uh, yeah. you know, I've done one larger Fannie, uh, well, two, two larger Fannie conventional loans. Um, but the Freddie small balance product for that size really, really is can't be beat. Um, except for the fact that the leverage isn't always all that good. And, and I think part of the problem yeah. with, um, not part of the problem, just where the market is right now, where prices have gone. I mean, I think a lot of people on the larger side have switched to bridge loans and, and going with debt funds. You know, on the smaller side, I've, I've switched more to, to working with community banks mm-hmm. uh, who are willing to also finance some of the construction costs and, and let's right. get a little bit higher leverage, um, but also more flexible terms, no prepayments, um, just that right. flexibility in, flexibility out, because in the way the market is, you know, we, we had a property that we expected to hold for five years and we just sold it in 21 months. And it's just where the market is now. It's, you know, you, you should take advantage of the market conditions and we are in the, the seller of like all sellers markets. And right. so, you know, I like that flexibility to not be, not be stuck in a loan because of a prepayment penalty. And so, 100%. and I think there's just value in building those relationships with community banks. I mean, I had a situation where a lender literally dropped out our day of closing. Uh, and because of some of the relationships that I had built, I was able to get another bank and close in two weeks, uh, and keep the deal together. Uh, you know, but like you, you, that's impossible with, with Freddie or Fannie. They just, they just won't move that fast. And so, um, so I think there's value in all of them, but really from a debt perspective, we we've switched more to working with community banks and trying to build really solid relationships. And there's a trade-off. You're not going to get as much amortization. You're not going to get as much uh, interest only, but you can get great rates and you can get real, you get a lot of flexibility. Right. Right. Yeah. There's definitely different flavors. And I always caution people to weigh the pros and cons, look at term sheets, look at a matrix. If you're using a loan broker, great, Mm -hmm. but uh, watch out for that prepay exit. You know, everybody says five years, we've sold everything inside of three. We always say mm-hmm. five right? and we set the expectation that it absolutely could be five, but we, we always sell inside of three and with yield maintenance or defeasance, like it just not happening. And then on the buy side, we see it constantly and it's I'm sure you see it too. It's kind of frustrating. Hey, here's an off market deal. You know, we need 28 million and you kind of do some back of the napkin and you go, Hey, this, this is worth taking a look at. Let's get the team involved. And, then yeah. the broker calls you the next day. We actually need 34 million because there's a pre yeah. like, oh, <laughs> right. That's pertinent information here. Yeah. Uh, but I've, yeah. I've, been, I've been in that situation a hundred times and, and it's like, these guys can't sell or they adjust pricing expectations by huge jumps that. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, we face some risk with the, with the bridge stuff, but we buy rate caps you know, mm-hmm. we keep an eye on maturities and the exit flexibility is just, is huge, especially in yeah. this market, like you said. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I, I think it's, you know, it's like, none of them are good and bad. They're just tools. And They're I think tools. people need, need to look at it that way. And I can, 100%. You know, it's just tools in the tool belt. You need to know how to use all of them. Right. right? If, and you need to know what, when to use all of them. And so, yeah, I think you, got, you definitely have to be educated on, on the debt side. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your, your thousand unit target. I love that. I love having a target with a timeline and for nothing else, but to reverse engineer 
kind of the process yeah. and the resources. Do you think that looks like, you know, 10 deals for you guys? Do you think it looks like four and how's, you know, what do you think are some of the resources you're going to need to get that done? I guess, you know, broker relationships, equity, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think it looks like eight to 10 deals. Um, yep. You know, I'd, I'd love to land 300 units in one deal and just sure. you know, not, knock a third of that out. But sure. um, I think realistically kind of our sweet spot, like I said, are those, 70 to maybe 120 unit properties. And so, you know, that's what that looks like. Um, You know, from an equity standpoint, I feel, I feel pretty good. Uh, You know, my, my equity base has grown a lot in the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. A lot of that's through podcast, you know, my my own podcast, I'm sure you've experienced the same thing, Um, but just, just attracting people that resonate with you, you know? Um, And I, the great thing about the podcast is when I, when I speak with interested investors, you know, it's so cool when they're already like, oh, I've listened to a bunch of your episodes. I already kind of feel like I know you. So I just have a few questions, you know, I'm like, oh, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so it just kind of warms people up to who you are. And I think that that's a great thing about podcasts. Um, so equity, I feel pretty good. Definitely broker relationships. And I, and I think expanding into, into more markets, mm-hmm. you know, so my goal this year is, you know, I, I've built, I've been building out my team. I've brought on a full-time acquisitions person. Oh, excellent. Um, and so really the goal is to, and he's actually going to be located uh, in the South. And so the goal is to expand in, into new markets and just continue to build solid relationships, you know, in our targeted markets. But really I started by just doing kind of a three hour radius around Indianapolis, mm-hmm. you know, and that's how, and, and that's where I've been looking. And so continuing to expand that throughout the Midwest and starting to get down into the Southeast. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And I think I, I was going to say the other piece of it, I think is going to be partnerships. So really a, lo- a lot of the, the deals I've done, um, many of them have been, been on my own kind of running from, from start to finish uh, or maybe a, somebody that has a small, uh, small piece of the deal, maybe somebody that brought a deal to me, for example. Mm-hmm. And so I think to, to get to a thousand, I think, you know, it's more just taking more advantage of, of partnerships and, uh, and leveraging each other's resources and growing together. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And these deals are big enough that they really lend themselves well to partnerships, which is one of the reasons I love the business. Uh, I flipped a bajillion houses, way too many. And that that's kind of a, it can be a good model, you know, to build up some capital and stuff, but you're kind of out there as a solopreneur, which pros and mm-hmm. cons, but it gets a little lonely. The syndication multifamily game is, it's pretty cool when you can win and, you know, your investors win and the team wins and you're kind of doing it as a, as a little community, which is rewarding beyond the, you know, the capital component of it. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, it's just, it's just fun to, to have success with other people. And, and it's yeah. one of the great things about being your own boss is you can choose who you want to work with. You know? and, and, and I think yeah. the cool thing about the multifamily community is there's a lot of great people, a lot of people that think the same way you and I do. And it's yep. just, uh, I think it's just a unique environment. Uh, I think I found way more, like I, <laughs> I used to call them when I was still doing consulting uh, and I was also going to real estate conferences, I would call them sad, com- sad conferences and, and happy conferences because I would, <laughs> I would go to like the consulting conferences where, you know, everybody's just an employee and everybody's boss is making them be there. Nobody really wants to be there. And everybody's right. just waiting until five o'clock till they can get to happy hour. And you look around and people are just kind of like moping around. And then, then you go to a real estate conference and everybody's like happy and energetic and engaged. And right. so you get sad conferences and happy conferences. I love it. 
Uh, that is so true. And I had that experience kind of in my corporate career doing the same thing. You go to a real estate conference, even if, even if somebody's got a, a day job, like they left their family, paid the money for the hotel, gone a weekend, like yeah. they're very deliberately there. And you get yeah, they want to be there. Yeah. 500 of those people in a room that are very deliberately there. There's a lot of energy and that's, that's fun to be around. A hundred percent. I, you know, I still like going to conferences. Um, yep. Cause yeah, you just, you get re-energized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a couple more things, Kent, before we wrap up, I just want to ask, you know, from your perspective and you, you've really laid out your journey and I appreciate that, but for somebody that's wanting to make their step, you know, a, a for make their foray into being an operator in the multifamily world, but hasn't done that. What do you, what do you say to that person? Well, as far as how to get started, uh, I think, I think there's two kind of two areas to focus on at first. Well, I guess besides just like your education and understanding what you're looking for and how to underwrite, right. That's, that's kind of general, but you got to start networking. You got to start networking with potential investors yep. way before you think you need to. I try, I tell people start talking about what you're doing or going to do six months before you ever ask anybody for money. Like you got, you got to have a warm intro to that. And then broker relationships, you got to start building broker relationships. Um, and it's not a hard thing. It's not a difficult thing to do. I think the difficult thing is, is it, it's hard for people to maintain that momentum. I think a lot of people start off strong and then fall off, you know, don't, don't talk to the broker for a few months and, you know, kind of lose steam. I think if, if you want to really be good at it, show up professionally, um, you know, and then stay with it and make sure you're talking to that broker at least once a month, but probably more, right? Cause you're going to, you're going to identify in your market. There's probably five, maybe six brokers that control like 80% of the deal flow. So yep. know who those people are and become their best friend. I mean, that's, that's really what, what you're trying to do. And, uh, and then with the investor side, I mean, that, that was where I really went wrong in my first syndication. Okay. Um, I didn't, I just, I, I wasn't, I didn't talk to people enough about what I was going to do before, before I approached them, you know, Mm -hmm. for money, I really underestimated how much you really have to change people's perception of who you are, even if you've had success in business, um, in other things, uh, because it wasn't real estate. And so, you know, I didn't meet the goal for my first raise. I raised like 50% of what I set out to raise. Right. And it's very uh, common. It's just, it's extremely common. We have, yeah, it's extremely common. And so that's why I try to warn people. That's why I say like, look, you need to start six months ahead of time. And even if you don't have a deal, that's okay. Start with, start with like a, like a fake deal, like an example deal, you know, and, and and you can take, take, but take a, take a presentation to them. Even if it's your buddy that you get beers with, right? You, you got to approach this in, in a different way. To show them you know what you're talking about and you're serious about it. You know, walk them through it. And then at the end, you can say, you know, so if I brought you a deal that was similar to this, is that something you might be interested in investing in? Or do you know anybody else that might be interested in investing? You know, and uh, I just think you got to start that conversation. And then the more that you can take those people along the, in the process, like that was really what I didn't do a good job of. The more you can bring them along and kind of get them on your side. And if you're, if you walk a property, you know, let everybody know, say, Hey, you know, saw this property look great. Or you put an offer in, even if you don't get it, say, because what I think what'll happen is you, you get people on your side and they're like, Oh, well you get them next time, you know, that kind of thing. And, and get people cheering for it. I think that really helps. So that's, that's my advice is, is start with brokers and investors 
And I guess yeah. just edu- education, but don't get stuck in the education trap because there's people that just educate and educate and educate and never take action. And at, like at a certain point, you can only tweak that spreadsheet so much. You got to pull the trigger. And it's going to change after you close anyway. So that's, I mean, that's frustrating. Thing, so right? at, at that, at that PE firm that our head of underwriting, he had a great saying, he's like, <laughs> he's like, you're, you're every pro forma is wrong. It's either yep. wrong on the good side or it's wrong on the bad side, but everyone is wrong because yep. you are making your biggest guess with the least information you have about the property. Yep. So you got to try to make an educated guess, but, but it, they're all wrong. So, so don't, spend hours and hours trying to make sure it's perfect, but just make yeah. sure you got enough cushion in there in case things do go wrong and then adjust as you go. Yeah. That's, that's the name of the game. Well, that, that is really sound um, advice for somebody looking at, looking to get into this. I mean, deals, if you're going to be sponsored deals and dollars are where your, your value is. And there's a lot of pieces too. And, and so to your point about people kind of falling off or losing momentum, it's tricky in the beginning because you're trying to start, you know, you're trying to get, 20 different things going that all need to happen, but focusing on, on deals and dollars is the way that you, that you grow the business. Well, I I love hearing your story. Um, Congratulations on your success. I wish you guys success with the, with the targets this year. If somebody listening wants to connect and, you know, another thing I love that, you know, we're totally different markets. I've never even looked at anything up in your neck of the woods and we're down in Texas but like all the same principles apply. Everything you yeah. said, I'm just nodding my head. Like, yep, that's that's an axiom. That's true. This is true everywhere. So, yeah. you know, it's it's just kind of reinforcing uh, all these all these truths of the business. I appreciate Man, that. One, anyway, one more somebody, thing. Sorry, uh-huh. one more thing. I just want to yeah. tell people because it's really helped me. Another thing a mentor of mine said to me because you, you talked about trying to get 20, th- 20 things going all at once, right? And right. how do you manage your priorities? something that's really stuck with me and helped me manage my priorities. A mentor of mine said, he said, just, just focus on getting a deal. A deal solves all problems. Love it. Yep. Yeah. It's not theoretical then. And all your education, you know, I will tell people maybe gets you halfway there. If you're lucky, you're never going to get the other half till you do a deal. And then when you do a deal, you, you must figure out the rest of the pieces and maybe they're not perfect, but you're going to, you're going to deliver on them. And that's such a great, like, That's right. Because everything will come together because it has to, like, I, cause you know, my, the way my mind thinks is I'm always trying to think like 20 steps ahead. So I'm yep, like, yep. well, who's going to manage it? Who's going to do this? And who's going to do that? He's like, you don't even have a deal yet. Just get a deal. hundred <laughs> percent. Yep. And then it really crystallizes everything else. Then you get on the other side of that deal. Now you're experienced. And then now you're in the small minority of people that has done a deal versus all these people that want to do it and never will. And once mm-hmm. you get over to that side, everything's yeah. different. Absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent, man. Um, awesome. Look, if somebody listening wants to connect, learn about what you're up to and, and, and all that stuff, how can they do that? Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. You can go to kentredder.com. That's my home base. You can access everything from there. We've got, a, we've got a weekly blog we put out. We do a newsletter. We've got the podcast, which is Ritter on Real Estate. And you can find that anywhere you listen to podcasts. And uh, so, yeah, if you want to get, get at me, you can contact me there and uh, you can sign up to be an investor. Otherwise, I'm on social media pretty much everywhere. You can, I'm always on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty easy guy to get a hold of. Good stuff. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, Kent, great to meet you. Loved hearing your story and wish you continued success. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks, Devin. Really appreciate it, man. All right. We'll see you. Bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.